Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. G'day there everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome again to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, our good mates who are world leaders in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, our guest on the podcast this week is a guy I've been wanting to chat to for a long time. I've known him for the best part of 20 years. Before he was a megastar on TV, he was a guy around the paddocks, just like me in the, the in the media, trying to make a way. Some would say he's made a very big way to the gold Logie stage, in fact. Grant Denyer, great to have a chat with him on the V8 Sleuth podcast. And we've covered some serious ground over the course of these two parts. Now, on part one of this podcast, we talk about his time on Trackside on Channel 10. Remember the show? Used to show Formula Ford and Formula Holden and the Konica V8s and Porsche racing. That uh, was where he really got his start in, in motor racing broadcasting. How he landed that gig with Channel 7 as the Sunrise Weatherman that really sent him into uh, whole new heights. We talk about his mid-race haircut, nationally televised. Probably the only man I know who's ever achieved that. Uh, His time racing in V8 Brutes, which started not too well on the streets of Adelaide, as many of you might remember. We also talk about his time with Dick Johnson Racing in the development series and that massive Adelaide shunt that really did uh, bring him undone straight away. Stay tuned too for part two. We talk about his breakthrough in the development series and when he realised that he could actually really win and mix it with guys who'd previously he'd Uh, been interviewing rather than racing against riding in Craig Gore's helicopter. That's a good story. Uh, The moment he chose between his TV and driving careers, we also get Grant to tackle the National Motor Racing Museum, couch racer questions, and, of course, it wouldn't be a podcast without the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. Don't forget, too, our bookshop is open for business online. It's bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Our new Bathurst 12-hour book is out now, 320 pages, documenting the last decade of the amazing 12-hour race and all the GT cars. The whole field from 2011 to 2020 is photographed in that book and and Grant features in it quite prominently too. We chat about that and his time in the 12-hour in the podcast as well. Our new Holden book, Racing the Lion, is also going to be out very soon. We're expecting stock uh, end of this week as we record this podcast. We should get our pre-orders out started next week and then... um, the following orders to flow from there. So Father's Day present, if you're listening to this before Father's Day, get on board. Order now, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. It's 400 pages. It's got about 900 photos, 80,000 words. It's a great illustrated history of Holden's time in Australian motor racing. Anyway, enough of the plugs. I chatted to Grant recently over a Zoom call from his home uh, at Bathurst. He lives not that far away from Mount Panorama. And I must warn our podcast listeners, there's a little bit of fruity language in this podcast where Uncle Grant and Uncle Aaron every now and then said a naughty word or two. So a little word of warning to those who might have some young ears around them at the time. Uh, Just block them whenever that stuff pops up. Anyway, let's get on with it. Buckle up, time to start. Part one of Grant Denyer on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Well, we've had Bathurst champions. We've had legends of motorsport. 
On the podcast with me today is our only ever Gold Logie winner. He is uh, also celebrating an anniversary with me this year because Grant Denyer, uh, congratulations. Happy 20th anniversary. I've known you for 20 years. Uh, the pleasure's all been yours. Oh, lo- love it to chat, mate. It has been mine. It's so funny, mate. I was actually just on the tractor literally a couple of minutes ago and... I was thinking, how long have I been in this game for? And 20 years was 20. I never, I had no idea I'd reached that milestone. Mate, it's a special one. Uh, I, I know you've done a, a podcast with our good mate, Greg Russ, so I don't want to go over um, all of the same ground. Clearly, it's a bit hard to avoid some of the uh, big ticket items in your TV and your, your motor racing career over the time. But it takes me back to something that we talked about on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, actually, because it's also... 20th anniversary of the Super 2 Series, which you'll remember very fondly as the Konica V8 Light Series back in the day and the glory days of Trackside on Channel 10 where you, I, I guess a lot of our listeners first saw you from a motor racing point of view. What are your memories of that, that Trackside program? Because it, it was kind of the first viewing that a lot of our motor racing fans got of some of the biggest names in the sport now like Winkup and Will Davison and Winterbottom in Formula Ford and Konica V8s and Formula Holden. Uh, it launched so many people in so many different ways. Yeah, I think Dean Canto might have won that first series that I worked on, and which was incredible because that was the first time I was able to get up close and, and touch and smell and feel V8 supercars, uh, you know, as a, as a standalone adult, not just a kid running up and down pit lane, collecting signatures on the free posters that used to be handed out all the time. So um, a lot of people ask me, you know, what came first, motorsport or television? And, and it was always motorsport came first for me. Television came second. It was just that I had to find a back door into motorsport because I wasn't particularly from, you know, a wealthy family. We didn't have a lot of money. I lived with my mom. She was a single mom on a single mom's wage. So it, it, it was tough. But I, I thought if I'm on television somehow, that's probably a good way to find sponsors. So why don't I go on television, find sponsors to then be able to, to fund my motor racing career. And that was, the decision was as simple as that. Um, but that trackside opportunity was, was one of my first, or it was my first national television gig. And that only came about because I, I saw a cameraman once when I was hanging around in the pits doing nothing as a late teenager. Uh, and I asked the cameraman who was clearly struggling trying to hold the camera on his shoulder and hold the microphone at the same time because, you know, it was never a big budget production. And I said, hey, mate, you look like you're struggling. Can I hold the microphone for you? He's like, yeah, man, that'd be awesome. Thank you. And I did that. And he said, hey, look, can you do it again? And I did that. And then I slipped in a cheeky question for him as well. So I started interviewing the driver whilst we were doing it. And then- Shut up! <laughs> at the front door. Uh, for those who are while, while, while we're paused, Grant's just going to check the door. <laughs> <laughs> this the dog. I got a. Uh, what, what are you? What are you? You're a caboodle. So what a terrifying intruder alarm! Uh, a caboodle called Princess Popping Popcorn would be. <laughs> and yes, that is that is its proper name. And no, I didn't name it. <laughs> so. Back to my story, it was um, that guy who I held the, the microphone for then asked a cheeky question for, asked would I be around again next weekend and then sort of started a relationship of working with and just helping the production teams who were shooting the support categories of, of V8 supercars. So 
that was my that was my gateway. That was my gateway into television and my gateway into a semi-professional racing career. I remember that time vividly, and and you'll remember really well too that the the trackside show was a post-produced program, so it wasn't live. It was the racing from the previous week or the week before that, cut together with all the different categories. And usually it was about a two or three hour show on a Sunday afternoon in what is, you know, at the time, 20 years ago, was a big time slot in terms of the amount of viewers that are are sitting down and watching it. But I guess it allowed the whole little circus that followed that undercard. Um, We were a little bit off the radar as as a, and I say we, because I was the print journal at the time for motorsport news and uh, a lot of people who we know so well in the industry now, not just competitors, but media and officialdom uh, were working at that time. I reckon that the Friday and Saturday night dinners and uh, uh, little quiet beverage sessions were probably the standout back in the day. I'm not sure how we got any work done. I don't know either. I remember when I first met you, your balls hadn't dropped yet. And, um, <laughs> but it was, we were both cutting our teeth. And, and we, we, because it was the support categories, no one sort of really mattered. They were just happy for someone to cover it. And I think you and I had a very similar mantra, which was make yourself available be cheaper than anyone else if you can't be better than anyone else. It <laughs> hasn't changed. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't go to university. I, I wasn't a great journalist, although I, I cut my teeth as a cadet out at Prime TV Wagga Wagga. I wasn't a political animal. I was never going to work for the ABC. So, again, I had to use my strengths. And sometimes that is just offer yourself, um, work for nothing. Ask if there's anything you can possibly do because you never know where an opportunity might might lead you, and that's how we sort of both got into it. And because that Conica series, you know, was was crazy for us because you can make all the mistakes in the world. You know, you could you could take an hour to do a piece to camera and stuff it up and swear and get it wrong, and but you need to grow and you need to make all those mistakes to get good fast because that's where the true growth of a professional comes. It comes from making as many mistakes as you can. And that's, that's where we did that. And, you know, I won't lie. I remember being on the piss with you probably about one in the morning and then getting up the next morning and then broadcasting, covering the V8 supercars at the world's loudest environments, which is not what you want with a hangover. No, I don't know how we did it. I couldn't do it now, that's for sure. But it was good fun. Do you remember one night we, I'm pretty, you were there and what I used to do is, is our producer, we used to bring our PlayStations along and we'd, we'd plug them into whatever seedy hotel that, our, that we could afford to stay in and we'd put, to get more realism in, uh, in playing Gran Turismo, we'd take like the, the dining chair that was sitting next to the desk and we'd put it up on the bed so it had like a little bit of movement. So as you were turning left into, the, in a, into turn four at Nürburgring, you know, the chair would have a little bit of a lean and it kind of felt slightly more realistic. And we just did that for hours and hours and hours and hours at minibar after minibar after minibar. Uh, I do remember that and I do remember an occasion where you decided to do it with a, a bucket on your head, but I, I don't know why the hell that happened or it was a rubbish bin or something. I, I've got no idea. But It was resembling a helmet. Thank yeah, you, young I, man. I think that must have been, but it had no eye hole. So I don't know where you thought you were driving, but anyway. I, I, was, I, I told you I thought I could drive around Bathurst blind and as it turns out, by blind, I meant not the bucket, but 15 <laughs> beers. Yes, exactly. Uh, The other thing I I wanted to bring up with you too, uh, I remember vividly 
you dovetailed the trackside motor racing stuff with, I think you were, you were a news journal at Channel 10 Melbourne News at the time, weren't you? And you, you would tell anyone who listened, mate, I'm the guy that does the kids stories and the fluffy animal stuff. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> if there's a flower show to be covered or a cut up a tree, mate, I was there. And <laughs> again, that was about trying to figure out your strengths and weaknesses as you're a young bloke coming up. You know, I knew that I wasn't going to read the news with that much experience. I knew that I wasn't going to be ahead of Greg Rust or I wasn't going to be ahead of Lee Diffie or Bill Woods or Daryl Beattie at that particular point who are all on the V8 supercar live telecast. So I had to figure out who I was and what my point of difference was. And I was in the newsroom um, and nobody wanted to cover those stories. So I made them my specialty and I put a lot of effort into making them really different, really quirky. And the big break that I actually got was when I was in a newsroom in Sydney, when I figured out that Sydney was the place to be if you're going to try and make it big in television, if you're going to crack the big time and then you need to be in front of the big players night after night. So I was in Sydney, terrified little kid, had no idea about the world or politics, working in a newsroom. No one knew I was there. Like I was, I was a fly on the wall. No one knew my name. I was just pumping up just quirky stories right before sport or sometimes it was this last slot of the day just you know after we've just given the, slot, the, the death and destruction get off nicely here's here's the last little thing so you don't kill yourself after watching an hour of this horror show here's, here's gd with his with his puppy story but what it did is the royal easter show came along and no journo no self-respecting journo wanted to cover the royal easter show and it goes for 14 days straight so I went to the news director. I said, mate, how about I save everyone the hassle? I'll do every single night, night after night, and I'll make every single night completely different. And he said, mate, if you're going to do that, you're going to save me the world of trouble, so go for it. This is all on you. And I did. I made it special. I made it funny. I made it different every night. And then I got a phone call on, on the last day of the Royal Easter show from the executive producer of Sunrise going, would you like to be our new national weatherman because I've watched you for 14 days on the Royal Easter show and nobody, nobody can polish a turd better than you. (laughs) (laughs) He said, you're the man for us. So I said, job done. I shall bring my polishing skills. (laughs) Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint. May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticket Tech. Supercars. Unforgettable. It's, yeah, it's funny. It's funny when you take on the, the shit that others won't do. And, and, I, and I, I see this sometimes. I don't see the same hunger in the current generation. We get a lot of work experience kids that come on the various shows that we work on. And I know when I was a weatherman on Sunrise not that long ago, you'd have work experience kids and you go, mate, can you just grab the tripod? Come with me. We're going to do this bit over here. They'll look at you and go, mate, I'm not carrying a tripod. Are you serious? <laughs> and they look down yeah. at you and they yeah. say that it's like they make it like you're abusing them. You say, no, I just want to include you in the process. Mate, I got my start at Prime Television Wagga Wagga by only carrying tripods and washing the news cars as well. You know, that was, that, that was my legit 
foot in foot in the door because I didn't go to university. I had to find another way in the back door and I've made a career out of using the back door. <laughs> Your Honour. I thought there was going to be a really nice classy D&M line about the University of Life there, but no, we got the back door anyway. <laughs> Nobody wants to learn from the bloody University of Life. You know, it's... Yeah. Yeah, know. everyone wants to go straight to stardom. Everyone, yeah. you know, people come up to me all the time and go, I, I, I want your job. I go, oh, yeah, what's that? Oh, I just want to be famous. I go, well, famous is not a job. You know, you have, you have to get good at a craft of some sort and then hope for some notoriety out of being good at that, at that task. You, you just, but that's, that's what everyone wants to do these days. So that's, that's why, you know, I, I found alternate means always. Uh, it's the way to do it. It's the way to do it. You talked about that time at, at 10 when obviously you started to get a bit of a leg up. Uh, the, the, the on-air lineup at the time, of course, Barry Sheen, Greg Rass, Diffy before he went uh, overseas, yeah. uh, Neil Crompton bouncing in and out, uh, Grant Kenny popping in and out a little bit, Daryl Beattie, uh, Billy Woods, as you mentioned, the, the pros pro of, of hosts, and Matty White floating around as well at that time. How were you accepted? Because I guess at the time you were about 22, 23, somewhere in that sort of a, a realm. Um, how did they accept you as the, the young, enthusiastic guy? Did they just let you do your own thing over there in the corner or did any of them take you under their wing? Yeah, it was funny. I was in the era of, of Mark Osler as well, who I'd spent my whole life, you know, growing up listening to on, on tapes. I've seen the inside of your room growing up, mate, and you had piles and piles and piles and piles of home-recorded VCR uh, races. Motor racing tapes. Motor- <laughs> Most of them were. The others had we had, had four X's on them. I don't know what that means. Four X beer. But I was the same and I, um, I used to sit down on our, our family farm out near Wagga Wagga and I just had piles of tapes and, and when no motor racing was on, I'd sit there and I'd just watch and watch and watch and watch and sometimes I'd bring my go-kart seat in, our homemade go-kart, and I'd put it on the floor in the lounge room and I'd take the steering wheel off and I'd just sit there and turn the corners as, as well when I was really little. So listening to those voices, you know, was a big part of growing up. Getting to work with them was, was mind-blowing. Again, I'd come from nowhere. They didn't know who I was or whether I was qualified to be there or, um, or whether I, I should have been there. But they were, you know, Billy Woods, incredible operator, you know, wonderful gentleman. Um, they were all good to me. Matty White, I learned so much on, on how to behave um, on set, how to behave as a professional offset. Uh, he was just such an all round hero. Um, but then Mark Osler would pull me aside and he'd give me some tips and, and it was really good. And so me standing in pit lane, I sounded like a 13 year old girl, mate. My voice was so high pitched and, Oh, there's a fire. There's a fire down here in pit lane. And you know what I mean? But it was, I was living the dream. I loved cars. I was, I was now wearing a channel 10 race suit, holding a microphone and, 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 and putting it in front of Mark Scaife, who I've got to say, I was so freaking terrified of Mark Scaife because he's a smart guy. He takes no prisoners. He can see through the guys who are pretenders. I was pretending, right? I was acting like an adult when I felt like I was like a, just a little pimply-faced teenager because I was. Um, but it was, it was a really cool environment to be in. And... I cut my teeth in there, but then I soon realised, like I said before, I was right at the bottom of the chain and I was not going to get to the top in a hurry. You know, these guys aren't going to hand over the most plum roles in Australian sport broadcasting. So that's when I decided sometimes you've got to step out to step up. 
And when that sunrise opportunity came along, that was, that was a, a chance for me to, to maybe leapfrog a few of those names that I was currently underneath, you know, at 10 Sport. Yeah, and I was going to get to the, the sunrise stuff a little bit later. So I guess that's about 2002, three, yeah. is that about when that happened? Yeah, that's, that's, that's correct, yep. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of years in... You know that because you've been watching those VHSs again. Oh, mate. Yeah, I've had to convert them to DVD because they wore out after a while. So we're in modern technology land. I'd love to find some of that um, that old trackside stuff and uh, for our uh, our listeners and our fans to see some. I'm not sure if broadcast tapes survived or where all that stuff, but there was a plethora of stuff that you worked on. And then after you left, I think Timmy Hodges spent some time on it and Mark Howard uh, with Trackside yeah. as well. Of course, Howie's doing awesome things now. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of great racing there that uh, hopefully hasn't been lost to the uh, pits of motor racing uh, rubbish tips somewhere in the corner. I of. I remember just yeah. interviewing like uh, Will Davison and Jamie Winkup in Formula Ford, you know, and just going, wow, you know, look at these guys there. You know, I wonder if they're going to be the future of the sport, you know, and they were. And the, fu- and the funny thing about the circle of life there is I remember when I started out in carts, and I'd take myself to the go-kart track, you know, as a 16-year-old. I had to find someone that my mum knew that owned a ute that would pick me up at 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning. A guy I'd ne- I didn't even know him. My mum just asked him to pick me up. He picks me up a ute, drops, drops me at the Oakley go-kart track. And, I'd, I, you know, and I, I'd, I'd learn my racing craft in carts. And then one day I kind of, there was this old bloke doing the commentary and on the other side of the track in this, this tin hut was on stilts and I wandered up there and he needed to go off and have a leak. So I said, do you mind if I have a go? And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, buddy, go for it. And so I picked up the microphone and I just started, and here comes number four. I didn't know anyone's name. Here comes number four in the yellow and black cart. Jerome turned four up the inside. He goes, what a manoeuvre. And I'm commentating to myself and I was having a ball. I thought, this is fun. And then these two little rookies come up, these tiny little kids come up. They just finished their race and they come up and say, excuse me, sir, can I have a go with you? Can we commentate together? I said, yeah, sure, kids, let's do it. And uh, you know who that was? It was Will Davison and Jamie Winker. <laughs> we commentated at Oakley Go-Kart Club for a couple of weeks. They'd come up and visit me and we just sort of bashed around and had, had some fun. And, and that was the first time I ever met them. And we've never got rid of them ever since. They have been <laughs> no. previous guests, I should say. On the V8 Sleuth podcast, anyone who hasn't had a listen to their episodes, they did talk about their time in uh, carts and all the junior categories. It's, it's a good listen. It reminds me of actually one of the – you and I have done a little bit of commentary together over the years. We spent a, a year or two doing the V8 Utes, the post-produced shows of those in Sydney. Yeah. But I got asked recently um, whether I've called some strange races in my time. Mm. And I said, well, I had to really think back. And you came to mind for <laughs> – one of two answers. One was when I was with some supercar drivers and some staff, we went to Iraq to visit troops in about 2007 yeah. and Murph, Rick Kelly, Jason Bright, Craig Lowndes drove Bushmasters and armored personnel vehicle um, carriers around the base, which is probably the most surreal commentary. But the strangest is that some people have commentated the Bathurst 1000 or the 12 hour or the, you know, any of the other Bathurst events, the 24 hour. You and I are the only people in history to commentate the Rex owner shopping cart trolley challenge at Mount Panorama Bathurst. 
you're doing that. How did we get that gig? We clearly were the rock, rookies of the... You were a star of Channel 7 at the time. You'd been at Sunrise for like five years. I was the first year rookie on uh, 7 Sports V8 coverage. That's right. How did we end up doing that? I completely forgot about that. Clearly, that's back to my theory that to always say yes to everything. Yes, that's it. the last bloke standing when they asked. <laughs> I remember once, I'm pretty sure it was you, I was racing in the mini-series and we are in Perth and I had an onboard camera and I'm sure you were in the commentary box. Yeah, I remember doing the series back then, yeah. And it had never really been done where any, no one had ever been spoken to during the race while you were racing. <laughs> like, I got really, with that for a while after someone had a drama a few years earlier, but we decided to bring it back, didn't we? We thought we'd do it again. That's right. Happened to Dick Johnson, didn't it? When his rear wing broke down the Conrad Strait at Bathurst. But I remember, uh, I remember, now I know why we don't do it because it's incredibly difficult. And I remember being in the race. I was near the front. I think I was leading the championship that year. It was the year before I broke my back. And I, I was in the heat of a battle. I think I was trying to pass Leanne Tander or she was behind me. And every time you spoke to me, I lost about half a second of lap and made myself vulnerable. So whilst trying to talk, trying to keep a car on the track and trying to keep, you know, an aggressive racer behind me, it was, it was so hard. And you wouldn't shut up. You just, like, kept asking me questions. And I couldn't – I didn't know how to politely say, would you just piss off so I can go and try and win this championship? You politely did in the end. Uh, I must find that tape, actually. I'll have that somewhere because, as you know, I keep everything. We'll get back to our chat in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and power transmission products and services. Now you might know their name and recognize their logo, but did you know that you're probably relying on Timken products whenever you fly? Timken products have been used since the early days of experimental aircraft flights at the turn of the 20th century, right through to the huge superliners that take us around the world these days. In fact, when your next flight comes into land, it's likely that its landing gear on the plane you're on contains Timken bearings. When a 500 tonne, yes, 500 tonne airplane, touches down on the runway, all of that load is transmitted to the ground through the landing wheels. And when those wheels touch the tarmac, they accelerate from zero to over 280 kilometers per hour in less than a second and experience temperature changes from sub-zero up at 30,000 feet to extremely high heat under braking on the runway. Each year, Timken's vast experience sees more than 12,000 product designs on more than 400,000 active planes, adding up to 1 billion safe landings and allowing 3 billion passengers to reach their destinations. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the VH Loop podcast this year. Now, it's back to our chat. I want to rewind too because I know you have covered off on this, but you are, you've always done a fantastic job of um, delivering for your partners, for the people who back you, who put their stickers on your race car. You've always been awesome at that, even from the early years. And I think of clearly just cuts and I think of Summit Fleet Leasing, who were with you for a long time in the, the Utes and the, the DJR stuff. Mm-hmm. Um Great partners, great backers, but you've got to do more than just put the sticker on the race car and, and all that sort of stuff. But you still remain the only man in the history of Bathurst racing to get a haircut mid-race <laughs> on television. I mean, no one else but you 
would have thought of that in that GTP race at Bathurst in the three hour where you were driving a Mazda 626. And I've got a little comment about that later on that I've got from one of our, our listeners. Um, but mate, that is the stuff of a mad evil genius <laughs> that guarantees TV broadcast time that I'm sure they were chuffed with and no one's done it since. Well, I'd seen so many great race car drivers slip through the cracks and never make it because of the commercial reality of the sport, that we are a 300-kilometre-an-hour billboard. <laughs> and I come from commercial television, so I was aware of that. And again, I was going to use my assets. Okay, so what? The Bathurst three-hour in 99 in that Mazda 626, and what a car. <laughs> um, <laughs> class D, I think we're in. It was my first ever car race, ever. Ever. So, n- nothing beforehand. Not even a, a state level thing or. Oh, I, got, I, I did like four races in, in, in Formula V to get my P plate license, yeah. to get my CAMS yeah. racing license. That was it. So I've gone straight from carts basically to this, this three hour race at Bathurst. And I thought I'd got a sponsor, which was Just Cuts. But how did you get them? What was the thing that got you the deal with them? There was a guy, a kid who, who was struggling at the Wagga Wagga Go-Kart Racing Club. And I, 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 I was leading a championship there or won a championship. I can't remember. And he, I just thought, you're right, buddy. Do you need any help? Is there anything I can give you any tips on, any setups? I told him the gear ratio. I gave him a couple of my setups for my cart because I was quick there. And, and then I just was pushing him to, out of the pit lane when you had to push a go-kart back then. And his dad came up to me at the end of the day and said, thanks so much. We've just found an extra second that would have taken us six months to learn. I said, yeah, no worries. And, he, and they go, what are your hopes and dreams? I said, oh, I want to be a race car driver. <laughs> As everyone at a go-kart track. He goes, oh, well, I own a Just Cuts store in Wagga Wagga. And why don't I introduce you to the CEO of Just Cuts? I was like, yeah, sure. I'll take that opportunity. And I've had Just Cuts as a sponsor primarily pretty much for 20 years uh, as a result from that just that one relationship there. And I think because I, I decided to cement the relationship by getting a haircut live in the middle of the race before the driver change, uh, they, they, were, they were so blown away that someone would go to that length that they were like, you know, this, this, this kid might deliver for us. Let's hang on to him. <laughs> Can I just say the rest of the race with fresh hair down the back of my race suit was the most uncomfortable race of my life. <laughs> I was spitting hair out of my mouth in my helmet as I was going through the dipper. Was worth it though. If they've been with you for 20 years, that's a small price to pay. Yeah, it's good. You know, you got to you got to be so thankful for those who put their sticker on your car and give you bucks because they're investing in not only the opportunity for their logo to be seen, but they're investing in you. And if you don't look after and nurture those people, you'll, you'll just never go anywhere. And you know what it's like. You've seen some people who are good at it and some people who, are, who aren't so good at it. And the ones that are good at it tend to stay in the game a hell of a lot longer. Yeah. One of the things that you've never been afraid to do is take the piss out of yourself. You are a world champion, Olympic and Commonwealth gold medalist at it. But <laughs> everyone in, the, the, in Australia kind of learned that when, when they got to know you on Sunrise. But we kind of knew that in the racing world a year or two before that, because case in point, V8 Ute rate or V8 Brutes as it was then. So you get the go. And I know in Adelaide, that very first one didn't work out too well where what the rear brake pads fell out of it and you ended up in the fence and then the whole V8 pit lane looked over to see all the telly blokes in the fence, which probably wasn't a good look, but you, you really got into that whole, you got to have a nickname. You were mad dog because you were sponsored by VIP pet foods. You had the, 
you had fake teeth put in, you had a collar, you had it all going on. I had a human-sized doghouse at the side of our our garage. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, it was it was a great series because it was it was the WWE of motorsport at that time. You know, a yeah. series that was created, and and my old man came up with the idea of, of the Utes. That was his concept, and then he ran ran it for for a guy called Ross Palmer, who who owned and ran GTP at that particular point, and. And it was about bringing entertainment back to, to motor racing. You know, make, making it a show first and a category second. And and so there was so much fanfare and buzz and hype about it. And there were great characters. Everyone had a name. And, you know, we took ours to the next level. And Mad Dog stuck for years. Mark Beretta still calls me Mad Dog to this day, which is... <laughs> so does Garth Tander, funnily enough. But it's... Which is weird because it's... I'm the most un-Mad Doggy dude you've you've ever you've ever met like i'm a i'm more i'm more i'm more like princess popping popcorn behind me than i am mad dog <laughs> what happened i remember vividly um that very first ever v8 you right because you apart from alan grice driving one in the 12 hour there was not really there'd been a little bit of pickup style racing in the 90s it hadn't really taken off and then the v8 brutes came along and 2001 Adelaide was the debut. I think it was about 12 cars. It was a non-championship brute muster or whatever they're calling it. So how did you get, clearly, obviously, your dad was a, a connection element of it, but how did you swing that deal? What did you do to get involved? How did you convince Channel 10 to let you do both roles for the weekend? And then what happened when the thing ended up in the fence? Well, they knew that when I was at Channel 10 that they and Channel 7 that the, I had the emotional baggage of motorsport. So whenever <laughs> I signed a contract with someone, I said, hey... Just so you know, I'm pretty committed to this sport. So you have to take me on knowing that that is the case. So that way I was allowed to go motor racing on weekends, even though I was on Sunrise. And occasionally I even skipped out of hosting like major primetime live TV shows. There was a show called It Takes Two there, which was, It Takes Two was like the singing version of Dancing with the Stars. And it was, you know, it was a highly rating show, which did, I don't know, four seasons or so. And I just, one weekend, the show was on. I'm like, no, nah, I've got to go motor racing. You know, I'm, I'm running in, in the, the DBS series. See you later. <laughs> you can get someone else. Channel 7's like, are you serious? You've got like the greatest opportunity of anyone in television would dream to host one of these live TV shows. And I, I said, I told you, motorsport is my number one passion and I'm always going to put it first. And I think because motorsport was my number one passion, I did put it first. I also didn't take TV as seriously. So I had a little bit of a cavalier attitude when it came to working in it, which is why I kind of took the piss a little bit more at sunrise and I wasn't afraid to run a mark and, you know, poke the bear a little bit and, and you know, and, and get into trouble as well. You know, I, I pushed the envelope just because I, I always thought I had a backstop. I always had something else, on, you know, on on the side, which was motorsport. So I remember, I remember pushing the envelope many times. I, I remember if I could make Koshi and Mel uncomfortable, that I was right on the limit. And because for every person that, <laughs> every person I offended, I had about ten thousand people that that liked me even more. So I remember once being chock a block up a horse live at breakfast television. I was pregnancy testing a horse, and I was literally up to my shoulder um in in this horse <laughs> and i got a phone call from from like the ceo of the network going ah oh, gd uh understand that uh, pregnancy testing is a part of rural lifestyle but we probably don't need to see what people are having wheat mix <laughs> do you mind coming off the road for a little while because we think your radar's gone off 
I remember a time when this podcast was about motor racing, but we've suddenly got to the livestock. Uh, uh, <laughs> we're going to end up with an episode with Larco before you know it. But uh, hey, d- tell me about that um, first Ute race, because is it right that the airbag went off and you thought you were in heaven with all the white smoke around? <laughs> so, so the brake pads fell out on like the second last lap. But, uh, what, why did they fall out? Did someone not put them in right? Or, or no, the, the genius idea which actually came from my father, was, you know what makes great racing is when brakes start fading because guys who are at the front start slipping back through the field and mistakes are made. And let's face it, you know, everyone goes to the racing to watch the crashes. So if we can, <laughs> if we can orchestrate as many near crashes as we can, how entertaining would that be? So they didn't put good brakes in them because they wanted to, them to fade. However, they'd never raced before. So we're at Clipsal. Hard on brakes, no ambient airflow because of all the cement walls around there. So these things are overly punished. Um, so they just disintegrated and exploded. And you can see it on the telecast. They just pop out down at the hairpin off the back straight. And so I've gone for the big stop at the final turn. Pedal's gone to the floor. All I can see is cement walls in front of me. And I'm like, oh, my God, what? I'm not experienced enough to know what to do right now. I don't know how to have a good crash. You're not experienced <laughs> enough. I'm like, there's no tyres in front of any of the cement walls. This, I, we've just got this race car. I don't want my career to end before it started. So I think I can either nail, if I go right, I'll take out the first three guys in the race. If I go left, I'll hit the head, head on into the wall and who knows what will happen. So I decided to drill just the guy in front of me, drill the back of him. His name was Rod Wilson. Mm. And so I hammered him and they'd forgotten to also take the fuse out of the airbags. So we had standard road going steering wheel still. <laughs> so the airbag's gone off and it goes off so quickly you can't tell it's gone off. It, it inflates and it sort of sticks to my helmet. So I'm just looking through this white fuzz. So I just, all I can see is this white glow. And so I've hit the back of Rod Wilson, a white glow has erupted. I'm clearly dead, right? I, I've passed over. <laughs> the pearly gates have opened and I'm going through the tunnel. I'm going through the white tunnel. And I remember thinking, this is serious, this is true. I remember thinking, well, at least it didn't hurt. So I, <laughs> I didn't have to worry about dying after all because at least it didn't hurt. And then the car sort of continues to career, hits the wall, comes to a stop, the the airbag peels off my helmet. Rod Wilson leans in sort of through, through the car and goes, mate, are you all right? And I was like, God, is that you? <laughs> Why does God look like Rod Wilson? <laughs> Why does he sell Pirelli tyres? <laughs> it was, uh, I, it, it, yeah, that was, a, that was a big shunt. That was a big shunt, that one. And how did you go with, who owned the car? Did you, have to, did you pay for it? They paid for it. How did it all happen? That's no, not a good start to the career. I think Quinny, Quinny had bought that car, uh, VIP Pet Foods. So Tony Quinn, who, who I rang up out of the blue and said, look, I'd seen him on the fringes just racing. I think I interviewed him actually uh, on trackside. He was, might've been yes, doing some um, Porsche Cup and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Porsche Cup. He was a new player. He had a lot of enthusiasm and, you know, he had his business, which was making chilled pet food. And I rang him and said, look, I do a little bit of TV. I want to do some racing. Would you get involved? And I think he bought the car and, I had to go back and convince him to spend more money to fix the car and to keep supporting me. And he's Scottish. It's very difficult to negotiate with a Scotsman. 
<laughs> he, he was such a legend of a bloke. And, you know, I've, I've kind of raced with him on and off, you know, for, for 20, 25 years as well. So it's, it's been a, lo- a long-lasting relationship. And hopefully I'll be running with him in the, in, in the Bathurst Six Hour and his Mustang. So, yeah, yeah. it's cool. Well, that might is that a scoop? Did we just get a scoop? Uh, yeah, look, if it happens, um, yeah, that's, that's if, if the event happens, that is. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah. yeah, no, Quinny rang me and said he's got a new car, would you come and have a drive? And I've been running in the production car series with Lotus, uh, with Tony Dalberto, and we came second there and won a stack of races. So I, I kind of, yeah, I like, I like the production cars. It's, yeah, it's really good fun. And any time you can do an enduro race around Mount Panorama, hello. Mm. Yeah, oh, and, and you and the Quins have... I mean, obviously, they backed you in the V8 Ute. Uh, you did the 24-hour in one of their Porsches with them. You went to Nürburgring with them. But I reckon the one that stands out, it's probably one that people won't forget, that I reckon your closest near win in the major Bathurst race was the 12-hour in that Mitsubishi Lancer that you guys, yeah. you, Tony and Clark drove. I think you finished second in 2008. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the car had a couple of penalties for, I think, restart infringements and some other bits in the sister Lancer. Yeah, Tony Quinn got four and- drive-through penalties. <laughs> Yes. I remember it probably added up to about a lap. You would have won it by a lap otherwise. It's worse than that. We started from pit lane in the race, even though we qualified second, right? We're on the front row for this endurance race. We qualified second, right? But Clark Quinn, his son, was going to start the race. So we're all, all the cars are all on the grid and we're like, where's Clark? Our car hadn't left pit lane yet. He's not even in it. Where's Clark? Was he still in there? Well, he, no, he was doing a dump. Right, he was taking a crap and missed the start of the race, so we had to start from pit lane. Right, <laughs> this is how serious they take it, which is what I love about them. We, Tony Quinn does an interview. Go, oh, Tony, it's a shame uh, after a great qualifying session, how come uh, you didn't start get to start the race? <laughs> Tony Quinn goes on television. Oh, Clark, he couldn't make the start of the race. Oh, why was that? Why could he make it? He was releasing the chocolate hostage. <laughs> the official answer was oh. he was releasing the chocolate hostage. That's why we didn't start. Uh. So we started from the back, got to the front. Tony got a drive-through, back to the front. Tony got another drive-through while serving a drive-through. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Speeding in the pits. <laughs> Oh, that was we we led oh. we led a number of times in that race, but it was it was so much fun. Those boys are really great to race with because they just they're just there to have a have a, have a good time. Yeah, uh, they've been around for so long now in so many categories, and and I know Tony's invested so much money not just in Australian racing but in Kiwi racing with his his track and uh, all the stuff that he's done's been been awesome. So yeah, I, I think of that twelve hour, and, and that were the days when it was a production car race before it morphed into the the GT race that it's been for the last decade or so, which, by the way, you can read about in our new book, Bathurst Going Global, the last 10 years of the GT Classic with a photo of every car from every year's race. So you're actually in there more times than I I remembered because, I mean, I've got the list here because I like to get the lists out. (laughs) In the 12-hour, I mean, obviously you did the Proddy car era, but since then, since it's been GT race, you've driven for the Mark car operation a couple of times. You've driven a Porsche. Ferrari, McLaren, Lamborghini this year. You've just about got the set here. What haven't you had a go in? <laughs> I've driven an Audi, but not at Bathurst. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I've had a really fortunate um, run at Mount Panorama and, and driven some great, great cars 
like I remember being in the Ferrari with Mika Salo, you know, former Formula One driver and Tony Valanda, um, you know, in, incredible GT driver. And it was, it was, it, it was with my mate, Tony Dalberto. We were running in the Australian GT production, the Australian GT championship. We'd finished second. Um, and just going, wow, I'm now like in, I've got Formula One dudes in my car. This is insane. Um, Meanwhile, Mick was going, who the hell's this bloke and what the bloody hell's Family Feud? <laughs> he goes, what is Family Feud? <laughs> yeah, the survey says, what? Who are you? <laughs> How's my Finnish accent, by the way? Uh, it needs a little work, but it's yeah, like, not that far off. I think it's a little Borat-ish, but you know. <laughs> My, my accents go Finnish, then they turn accidentally into Borat, then they become pirate within about 10 seconds. So it's, it's Kimi Raikkonen from Kazakhstan all over. <laughs> yeah. that, that, unfortunately, we were out in the second corner of the first lap. Uh, yeah, right, so yeah. Some, some dreams end prematurely at Mount, Paran- Mount Panorama. In fact, a lot of them do. They do, but sometimes they go well. So talk to me about the... The Utes went for a couple of years, and I think you won the summer series that they had after the pro car had collapsed. So uh, y- your dad, Billy West, really got the Ute stuff together with all the shareholders who owned all the cars and turned it into what became a great series for the better part of a decade or so. And there was actually a summer series that I think you won, didn't you, in yeah. like late 04. And then the the roll-on came to, to drive for Dick Johnson's team in the development series, I think, can't remember what the, the title of it was then. It's changed about a million times. But was it the was it the Ute stuff that obviously they had a great commercial platform. You had partners. It worked. But then the whole all right, let's go to the next racing series. That's serious. Like the Utes was a bit like twenty twenty cricket. It was yeah, it was fun, entertaining, colourful, yeah. hit and giggle, uh, mm-hmm. over quick but not deemed the, it's not test match or, you know, one day international sort of stuff. No, God, no. No, it was. CBS was. So was that clearly a case of you going to the sponsors to go, hey, we want to go to this pathway. I want to get to driving about supercar. Come with us. Or did the, yeah. the call from Dick Johnson come? Or was it a case of, look, I've got a sponsor. I've got some money. Let's do something and, and make it this next step. They, they tapped us on the shoulder. Um, so it was, I, I'd won a couple of races, then went on to win the championship. And because we're on the same weekend as the supercars, they, you know, they must have been watching, you know, even though the Utes were, it's funny, you know, even though the Utes weren't serious, you'd notice a lot of the crew members in the garages would just stop to watch because there was always just crazy shenanigans, man. There was always panels being bashed and it was, it was dirty. The Utes were dirty as which is what made it awesome. So I just must have, they must have seen the commercialism and then they, my speed caught up to, to the commercialism and, and that must have made me, you know, a viable entity to them to, to look at. So they were branching out, you know, they had cars sitting around the workshop and they were wanting to value add their business by running secondary programs. And so they Dick tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know what, man, it's, it's, you, why don't you come and drive for me? Why don't you give this thing a, a try? And I was like, I shit myself. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I've been working on obviously interviewing everyone and hosting trackside. And so to now be a part of the championship was a, you know, a, a really significant milestone for me and, and a mega opportunity to, to join the oldest established team in V8 supercars, let alone, you know, my idol, Dick Johnson. So yeah, it was, it was huge. And we had to rattle together a few more backers, which we made work, and, and we ran a great program with them there. 
what uh, what was the first time? I think you got a little drive of a supercar or two on the way in your Channel 10 days before that. Do you remember the first time you got your bum in a... a yeah, I do. Yeah. It, was, uh, it, was, it was Brad Jones' ride day at the end of the year when they, you know, they just take the sponsors out for two days straight and they just do like 150 people a day. Like, it's usually after an event. None of the supercar drivers want to do it because they're knackered. So I remember asking Brad, I said, hey, Brad, can I help you out at all in any of these ride days? And, and he thankfully said, he said, yeah, and which was a golden opportunity. So I was just doing lap after lap after lap after lap after lap just all day with punters in the car next to you as I was just trying to figure, figure the thing out, you know, on absolutely ragged tyres. <laughs> like, it was a shitbox because <laughs> it had no rubber left underneath it. But just how does the gearbox work? How much grunt does it have? How much brake pressure is in the, you know, in the, in, in, in the pedal? Because the one... The hardest thing for me to get used to in, in supercars was, was braking because they require 70 kilos upwards of brake pressure every time you a, a, apply your leg on the pedal. And if you're doing that 12 times a lap, you know, that's, that's a massive amount of leg work. And I'm only a little dude. So I just thought it was a great opportunity to get to learn the dynamics and the physics and, and the physicality of a supercar. Yeah, it was, that was big. Speaking of big... Your V8 debut was big, but not in the way that you would have intended. It was a big accident, wasn't it, down that centre chicane? How many dollars did that cost to repair? Because you well and truly rooted that Falcon. I've only had a couple of crashes in my life, but why the hell do they all have to be on television? Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I, I'd only done that one drive day. Um, so how long ago was that with Brad Jones? Was that the year before? Maybe. It could have been two years before, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but what had happened was, because I was a mad weatherman, um, just chasing cyclones, because that's what I like to do, uh, you know, that segment became very much adventure reporting. So I like to put myself in the eye of the storm. But on the only test day prior to my debut in the Super 2 Series at Adelaide, um, I was stuck in a cyclone. So I, I couldn't get out of uh, Cairns or Townsville or wherever it is I was, Early Beach. And I missed the only chance to test the supercar before I turned up to Clipsal, again, a concrete lined wall, walled street circuit and having never driven the car. So I go out in the first practice, really unfamiliar, completely out of my depth, shitting myself that I'm in Dick Johnson's machinery, you know, loving the opportunity I've been given, but again, just not well prepared. And then I remember... I remembered in the ute, you could go over turn two. So the, the middle part of the chicane, you could just drive straight over it on full throttle. <laughs> <laughs> the problem was you weren't driving a ute. There's your problem. <laughs> However, at 650 horsepower, it turns out you can't do it in a supercar. So I remember I was in P4. I thought, I'm going okay here for, for having no miles in this thing. Look at me go. I'll step it up. <laughs> So I go barreling into turn one under the, under the bridge, uh, throwing it in there deep, uh, and I've, I've, it sort of shot me over the middle part of the chicane, and I've just stayed into it. So it's got airborne, but it landed one wheel first. So it's landed one wheel first. I'm near, near on full throttle. <laughs> so 650 horsepower through one wheel <laughs> turned me hard right. And I just went head on in the wall at 150k an hour and absolutely just destroyed the thing. So I was in tears. I was crying in the car and 
because uh, I, I realized the significance of what had happened and how I'd fucked it up and excuse my language, but I remember being pulled out and I dislocated my shoulder. It popped back in, but I'd, I'd broken a bone in my hand and, you know, I was really sore. And I said, they pulled me out of the car and they said, look, I think you're going to have to go to hospital. And I said, I think you're right. I choose hospital over seeing Dick Johnson any day. (laughs) 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 Because I had a broken hand, word had got back to him that I had a broken hand. And by the time I came back from the hospital, I was walking down pit lane, doing the walk of shame, all the way in front of the garages, walking towards Dick Johnson, who was waiting out the front for me in pit lane. And I could see him and I thought, oh, my God, my career's over before it's even started. And I walked up to him and I said, Dick, I am so sorry. I'm, I, I have no words. I'm sorry. And he goes, that's okay, mate. I've seen worse. Put it there. And he puts his hand out and he makes me shake his hand and he shook my broken hand so hard that I, I, I cried again. <laughs> He knew it was broken, the bastard. He got you. He got you. But, you know, it, again, that was one of those lessons that you got to learn the way. You've, everyone has a crash. It took me a little bit to get over it in terms of confidence, but, um, you know, everyone's had one. So that's part one of our chat with Grant Denyer on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken. I was really enjoying that. I'm sorry to have to break it up to uh, send us into part two. Uh, speaking of part two, we'll talk about a bunch of stuff. We'll talk about his breakthrough podium finish in the development V8 series, uh, the story about riding in Craig Gore's helicopter, that's a good one, uh, the moment he chose between his TV and driving careers, we tackle the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Tracer questions with Grant, and he also provides some really good answers in the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter uh, via the v8sleuth.com.au website, that way you'll be kept abreast of all the stuff that we're up to and all the latest and greatest in deals and what's going on with our online bookshop. Follow us on social to we're everywhere facebook instagram twitter you know the drill and of course uh give us your feedback we really want to hear from you about who do you want to hear on the podcast coming up what you thought about previous episodes any suggestions or feedback we're happy to cop it good bad or indifferent uh, jump on the website and send through a note via the form uh, the contact form on v8sleuth.com.au and of course subscribe to the website that way you get a notification every time we pop up with a new episode and you'll be among the first to hear it out there on audio wavelength. I think that's what they call it. Anyway, uh, that is part one of the V8 Sleuth podcast with Grant Denyer powered by Timkin. Stay tuned for part two. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil, and find out.